But I'm happy to fail on this part, and tonight you will have to either en enjoy or endure me, as you prefer. Um, we have a few announcements to begin with. Uh, next week we have our special uh, presidential debate with the US consulate. Uh, you may have seen the event page on Facebook. Uh, uh, a lot of people like said that they're going and interested, but you need to RSVP us and so that we can put you on the spreadsheet because we need to let the consulate know. Uh, so if you have said that you're going or interested, just make sure that we know and we can put you on the spreadsheet. Um, I think we have a maximum of around 40 or so people, and we have we have 15 or so spaces left, so I think we have some room. Um, you may have heard this weekend is the QUB IV. Uh, minimal excitement, um, Thank you. Uh, you can come along. We have a few speakers representing us, and you can come along to the... We'll all be in the NBC from early on Saturday morning, and the, as far as I'm aware, the competitions will take place throughout the NBC and the club rooms in the SU. Uh, but if you come along to the NBC, you can get in touch with one of council members and find out where you can go along to witness some, some prime debating. Um, we also have a workshop tomorrow evening with uh, Ollie Donnelly, who will be one of the CAs for the competition. Um, if you want to come along at 6.30, there's an event page on Facebook, we shared it with the literary, you can find it on there. Uh, he'll teach us all the very basics of what they look for in competitions, so it's going to be quite difficult to, uh, quite different rather, to what we discuss here. Um, Read Craig Miller. Um, but he will teach us the very basics of what you look for and how to succeed in competitions. Um, we also have a few upcoming debates, which have some spaces still left to fill. We have debates on Trident, Hiroshima, the Chilco Inquiry. Uh, at the moment, I believe we have at least a minimum of one space on each side, so if you're interested in any of those, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, we'll move now to a little bit of private members business if you have any if you have any news or if you've seen anything in midweek that you're interested in that you'd like to bring to the attention of the house. Anyone? Yes sir. So what does everybody think about the increase in tensions between NATO and Russia? For example, the build up now along the Russian border border from both NATO and Russia is the largest build up of military force along that border since the Cold War. Stop making a scene, Matthew. <laughs> Anyone want to make a scene? Um, any response to that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh no, can't can't do something. I think it's just uh, a result of the, um, the West essentially being food in the Middle East and like basically Putin's clearly been strong on them and they've been getting tactics all wrong and what's happening in Syria is just a direct result of all this and it's escalating into Eastern Europe. So it's the first time Russia, basically since the fall of the wall, has actually shown some kind of force and starting to have the West know instead of yes all the time. So it's just a result. Any response, Chris? Well, it's not the first time. Ukraine ring a bell. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, in the last like, few years, like literally last like, three years, maybe, Putin's been getting attacked, that's right. Well, you say, right, you know, the man is bordering on a fascist. What? Any response to that? Harry down the I mean, it's much, much less useful to look at it through an ideological lens. Whenever you consider the implications of the EU's involvement in Ukraine and the subsequent fall and the rise of the ultra-nationalists look loyal only to the Ukrainian government, it's a clear response by Russia to 
reassert its own control over the neighboring buffer states, which has been Russian military political ideology pretty much since the Tsars. Um, as far as the NATO buildup, it's also matched by Russian war games, particularly in the northern uh, um, the peninsula of Finland. So it's it's hard to tell which one is the aggressor here, but it certainly is an extension of mutually assured destruction, or the idea of if both sides show power, then the risk of a bigger involvement will collapse. However, I, I don't see an end as until at least the Crimean situation simmers down. Uh, any other pieces of the news that you'd like to bring up and discuss from, from the past week? Mm, Thanks so much. Um, as a member of the Alliance Party, I'd be interested in hearing what the House's opinion is on Naomi Long becoming the new party leader. Naomi Long, any thoughts? Come, oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Might agree. Kerry, yourself? I, for one, support our new leader. <laughs> Very good. Any, any poets yourself? I'd like to know if Naomi will fix the focus on Belfast and the debt to the detriment of the country that the Alliance Party has traditionally shown. Yeah, it was actually, she mentioned that actually in uh, yesterday, she's put an emphasis on building up associations in, for example, West Rose, which has got a membership margin in other places, so especially for the local elections in 2019, we're planning to build and hope to have some success over there, so I'd agree that'd be a priority myself too. Any final private members business? Anything else you want to bring up? Oh, John? I want to know the uh, House's opinion on Heathrow. Mm -hmm. Good question. Anyone? I think it's splendid. Splendid? Kira? Why? Disasters for the climate. Disasters for the climate. 40 years too late. <laughs> Big calls this evening. Um, <laughs> Any, any, anyone want to make a, an elongated point on Heathrow? <laughs> <laughs> I think Gladbach should, Gladbach should get one as well, just to make things even. I just suggest to the House that given how far away some airports are from the cities they claim to be in, mm -hmm. would it have been better to designate Belfast City as Belfast London? <laughs> <laughs> Belfast, London, Belfast. Who said that? I think that concludes part of my first very productive discussion. Um, normally, I'd hand, in this position, I'd hand over to the minutes, but I feel odd because I need to hand over to myself. Does anyone have any suggestions as to how I might? Uh, go sit down and come back. Yeah. That's been too long. Watch this. <laughs> the fifth ordinary meeting of the Literate took place on the 20th of October 2016 and was attended by 78 members. Private member's business was heard from Mr Finbar Rogers, who wished to congratulate Bob Dylan on receiving the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature. Mr Rogers also wished to bring to the, atten uh, bring to the attention of the House Leonard Cohen's verdict that giving Dylan a Nobel Prize was like pinning a medal on Mount Everest. Mr. Chris Pratt then asked the House if Donald Trump had finally jumped the shark when he claimed that he would only accept the result of the US election if he wins. Mr. James McNally responded by saying that he jumped the shark many moons ago when he said all of those racist things accidentally on purpose. Mr. Finley concluded by saying that Donald Trump hadn't jumped the shark, Donald Trump is the shark. 
John McLennan then wished to hear the House's opinion on whether the Labour Party were doomed after recent opinion polls show that the public was now more supportive of Big Theresa's House of Amnesia than ever before. <laughs> <laughs> she goes back on her policies again. <laughs> It is perhaps somewhat indicative of the Labour Party's strife that the question was never really answered as the House was too busy clarifying just how far ahead the Conservatives actually are. <laughs> Further discussion involved brief mentions of the Chet Evans case and WikiLeaks before Mr Murphy announced time for questions questions. Questions were heard from Ms Lily Vetter, who wished to know what the President had for breakfast. In a break from his usual decadent breakfast routine, Mr Murphy announced that he enjoyed a hot dog lattice. I don't even know what that is. What is that? I don't know. Too posh for me. <laughs> Richard Ireland then asked the president where he procured his bow tie for the evening, a question he dodged brilliantly so as not to reveal the real answer of MrsBowtie.com. <laughs> <laughs> Hope he's not listening. <laughs> Without further ado, President Murphy then announced the evening's motion that this House believes that Black Lives Matter has done more harm than good. Opening for the proposition in his maiden speech was first year about Mr. Matthew Bryson. He began by setting a precedent for the debate whereby the general BLM movement and theory must be separated from the organisation in which it has begun to appropriate the title. He claimed that the initial movement and demand for change was admirable, but now the movement had become embroiled in advocating riots and violence. One of these included the recent Baltimore riots, where two people were killed and over $9 million worth of damage was caused. Meanwhile, in the month following the riots, was the worst month of homicides in the U.S. for 44 months. He concluded by, saying this, he concluded by stating that pl uh, placing police officers in a constant state of fear as to how their actions will, will be perceived has only served to exacerbate the issue. Opening for the opposition was Mr. Finbar Rogers. He claimed that before our very eyes we were seeing Jim Crow 2.0 in America, with Black Lives Matter being at the forefront of standing against the racist infrastructure. He asserted that the BLM movement was a natural descendant of Martin Luther King and its aims and objectives, and that the system must be seriously flawed when black households in the US hold just 6% of the wealth. Mr. Rogers then rallied against mass incarceration, informing the House that America holds 25% of the world's prisoners, whereby 40% of said prisoners are black Americans. This is compared with the overall black population of the US, just 13%. Continuing with the proposition in his maiden speech, Mr. Con O'Neill. He opened by taking exception with Black Lives Matters with Black Lives Matters wish to secure reparations for black slavery in the United States, claiming that not only would it be feasibly impossible to orchestrate, but it would be misguided to ask only the US to pay reparations as slavery was once a worldwide phenomenon. <coughs> he refuted the claim that the United States has an inherently racist infrastructure, asking the House to point out one racist aspect of American law. He concluded by saying the very boards and legislature which Black Lives Matter have chosen to attack feature prominent black figures who would have already changed the system were it found to be racist. Continuing with the opposition was the third main speaker of the evening, Mr. Hugh Dobbin. He asked the House how it was when the black population, uh, uh, how it was when the black population in America was finally making their voices heard that they were now being told how to behave and protest in a way that was acceptable to the white establishment. He claimed that Black Lives Matter are not perfect, but the idea that negative aspects have somehow overshadowed how they have successfully brought the debate regarding police brutality and institutionalized racism into the foreign states is ludicrous. Concluding with the proposition was Dr. Craig Miller. He claimed that Craig Miller of 2013 would have very much been behind the initial BLM movement, as it served to highlight some of the problems within US society and brought the debate into the limelight. However, in three years, a lot has changed. 
He claimed that the BLM movement now is simply headed in the complete wrong direction of inciting violence and riots, wherein it should be focused on issues which are really causing the subjugation of black America, a lack of education. He claimed that the disparity in education between majority white and black areas, uh, coupled with a minority of police officers who have taken excessive action, were the real issues that must be tackled. Conclude with the opposition and still the debate which was Katarina Schwartz. She claimed that Black Lives Matter has never asked for riots or incited violence, claiming that they have always been the first to speak against vain deaths. She went as far to say that simply existing as a black man or woman in America was an act of rebellion against the fundamentally racist infrastructure. She claimed that BLM were doing more, far more good than harm in raising the issue of the de facto segregation and ghettoization of black communities and slowing to raise awareness of police brutality. Questions were heard from Deborah, Killian Thompson, Alonzi, Ashley Kane, Layla, and Sheepra Dixon. <laughs> a vote based on personal opinion was taken before the debate, which read zero eyes, 16 nays, and 18 abstentions. Meanwhile, a casting vote based on speaker's performance on the motion this house believes Black Lives Matter has done more harm than good was taken, which read 12 eyes, 29 nays, and 9 abstentions. May I take the message read? Aye. Thank you. <laughs> Present scratches for the evening, I want Rachel, yes? Where did you get your tie from? Uh, oh, good question. Uh, next, apparently. <laughs> Next question, Kira. What did you have for breakfast? Uh, I said true to my working class roots on my Tantra Murphy, so I enjoyed some cinnamon crunch cereal this morning. <laughs> if anyone says cinnamon isn't working class, I'm coming after you. <laughs> Next. Any others? Thank, thank most of God. Well, without that, I will call upon the first speaker for the proposition, which is Mr. Uh, sorry, well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're being this out. Uh, Miss Ellie Newton to bring in the case for the proposition. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think it's probably uh, pretty essential that in a debate like this uh, we clarify some things about the motion. So, in this particular debate, we are talking about a burqa, which is being fabulously demonstrated by someone over there. <laughs> And so we're talking about covering, leaving just the eyes, we're not really covering the new club head covering for this particular debate. To start with, I'll be covering aspects of security, uh, how, the, how the ban could relieve pressure, and the importance of identification as reasons why a burqa ban would benefit both Islamic women and the public in general. So to begin with security. We here in Belfast are in quite an interesting position. When the rest of the world hears terrorist extreme, extremist groups such as Al-Qaeda or ISIS spring to mind. However, in this part of the world, a face covered by a balaclava may be a more prominent image. Now, the burqa and the balaclava are both polar opposites in terms of the ideology behind them. But the result is the same, a masking of the facial features in order to remove the identity of the person behind the mask. It is therefore unsurprising that a burqa is seen as a threat to security, as covering the face is so commonly associated with having something to hide. Modern security systems are beginning to rely heavily on facial recognition. The ability for cameras to pick out and identify facial features is crucial to crime prevention 
in all public spaces. Insistence by females to wear the burqa provides a socially acceptable disguise that could hide anybody from the everyday bank robber to an extremist bomber. On the 23rd of October last year, a suicide bomber hiding beneath a burqa killed 10 at a mosque in Pakistan. On the 11th of July in the same year, 14 were killed by a suicide bomber in Chad, again concealed by a burqa. In 2009, a bomber killed 19 people in Somali. In February 2010, 54 bombed in Baghdad. December 2010, 41 killed at a security checkpoint in Pakistan. I could go on. All of these attacks were carried out by either men or women using the burqa as a disguise. On that point? Yes. Surely, if they're using a burqa to presumably hide the explosives they have on them, they could just wear a large coat. After all, it's not like they have explosives on their face. Absolutely, they could. However, they wouldn't be recognisable on camera if they were wearing a burqa, whereas they would be if they were simply wearing a large coat. But a suicide bomber, it's also not, it would be foolish of me to only mention um, attacks or criminal activity that only goes on in extremist groups. In August 2010, a man successfully robbed a bank in Silver Spring, Maryland, while dressed up in a burqa. Uh, January 2011, a man wearing a burqa attempted to rob a bank in Philadelphia. Similarly, three years previously, three people robbed a bank, dressed up in, uh, in burqas, and a police officer ended up being shot. Again, I could go on. Anti-masking laws are far from uncommon. What information? Yes. Uh, most of the attacks you've described so far describe men uh, covering themselves in burqas. Or women, actually. Some of them are women. Well, most of the ones you've described have had men covering themselves in burqas. Can you explain to me why women, who view it as a, like a religious obligation to wear this, should have to take the burden uh, of having to deviate themselves from what men have predominantly committed crimes in their religion's name? Well, firstly, it's not a religious burden, as I'm sure one of my acquaintances will be pointing out later on. It's not even mentioned in the Quran to be covering of the face. Uh, and secondly, I think that security takes precedence, especially when so many people uh, could possibly be killed. Now, um, many states... Um, no, at the moment. On no level, many private companies, especially banks, reserve the right to request people to move their headgear, if this could be cycling helmets. It makes It is common sense. Not only is someone wearing a burqa indistinguishable on camera, which is so vital when it comes to crime prevention, but also, more dangerously than a helmet or a balaclava, the full body covering doesn't even make the outline of the person visible. The gender is completely unknown. And this is currently acceptable in public. It's a gift to the everyday criminal. Uh, now, many women do claim to wear the burqa out of choice, and we have to take their word on this. Uh, however, many do wear it under certain social pressures, and uh, we know that this exists family and social pressures. I argued that a ban would actually give liberty to many women, as a legal ban would provide the perfect reason to not wear one. I would go as far as to say as more women have the control over the country that they live in than what garment they wear on their face. During this refugee crisis... Uh, yes, go for it. Um, is the idea of liberty not mainly choice, that women should be allowed to... Uh, yes, no, absolutely, but again, we're talking about choice. This is a garment that's existed for over 15, uh, 1,500 years. Uh, choice at this point is an interesting word to use. During this refugee crisis, we may see the rise of Islam in this country. Muslims have lived here and practiced their religion here for hundreds of years. However, it's only recent developments and conflicts in the Middle East 
that have made our cultures more polarized. We may be criticized for our pop culture and uh, showing youths wearing very little clothing. However, in truth, seeing people walk around every day covered from the neck down is hardly uncommon. In fact, given the weather in this country, it's more than practical. It is the covering of the face which creates a barrier. And I fear this prevents Islamic women from becoming fully integrated in our society. A hijabi woman, which is anyone who wears anything from a scarf covering to what Mo is wearing over there, um, and are far less likely to be hired in a job interview than someone who is not wearing a headscarf. 17 NHS hospitals around the UK disallow their staff from wearing the full veil, not just for reasons of hygiene, but also because reassurance and trust simply cannot be conveyed in the same way. The burqa was designed for a culture where women spend very little time in public and the majority of it in the home. This explains why it isn't exactly worn for or designed for everyday tasks. Even eating is a challenge. We in this country do not live in a culture where women are encouraged to spend the majority of their time in the home. The pure design of the burqa limits it in ways where limits the ways in which women can participate in our fairly public society. To sum up, the burqa is a threat to security. It provides a far too easy and convenient hiding place. In a world where extremist groups target the public, we cannot let identity be so easy to hide. Secondly, a legal ban on the burqa would relieve a lot of the pressure experienced by young and especially impressionable women to even wear the burqa. Finally, we are an open society where the identity of every individual matters. It is our duty to ensure that anyone who comes here can integrate. The burqa, when described in the Quran, is called a barrier, and that is exactly what it is. For these reasons, I urge you to vote in favour of the motion and ban the burqa. Thank you very much, Ms. Hughes. And now I'll call upon the first speaker for the opposition, Mr. Jack Armstrong. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to begin by discussing the uh, human rights reasons why there should not be, why I believe there should not be uh, a ban on the burqa in these countries. Um, I'd like to begin by quoting one of the most important human rights documents that we have here in Europe, the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, Article 5 of which promotes the right to liberty, Article 8 promotes the right to privacy. Article 9, the freedom of thought, conscience, religion. Article 10, the freedom of expression. And Article 14, the prohibition of discrimination. All of these are good reasons why we should not ban the burqa. So I think the key question here is, quite simply, do two wrongs lead to a right? Of course it is wrong, it is disgraceful, that in Islamic countries, women are forced to cover their faces and their whole bodies in a burqa, but quite simply, is it not as bad for us to force women to not wear one if that is their religious con if they feel that is their religious conviction? Certainly, if a woman is forced by male relatives, by their fathers or husbands or whoever, to cover up, that is absolutely unacceptable. But we must accept that people interpret religions differently. People interpret whether it's Christianity, Judaism, or Islam. That people interpret it differently. And some women may well want to wear a burqa of their own accord. I mean, the essence of. Yep. Well, I mean, right now, there's a case 
which has just been resolved, the Asher's Bakery case, which has proven the state's role in determining e role, uh, economic relationships, yeah. even whenever their religious affiliation disagrees with what they're doing. So surely there already is a precedent that's set for allowing the allowing equality of religion to trump individual rights to. Exactly, I do think there needs to be a balance, and I have mixed feelings about the Asher's case, but on the one hand, I think you do need religious freedom, but you also need an individual freedom, and I believe that a ban on the barcode would violate both. So, yes, so the essence of feminism is for women to have the same choices as men, to have equal rights, to men to make their own choices, whether that's clothing or work or education or anything like that. So, is there anything? feminist about a woman being forced to cover up? Absolutely not. But equally, is there anything feminist about the government, the state, telling a woman that she cannot wear what she wants? We should give men and women equal choice for what they want to wear and what not to wear. Okay. Yep. Um, I could surely interpret Genesis and Adam Neve walk around naked as an excuse for myself to walk around naked in the street. That isn't allowed, and surely that would be my interpretation of the Bible, but no one quibbles with the law that says I can't walk outside nude or no one can. Well, I mean, there has to be, I suppose, some restrictions in terms of, okay. in terms of a, you know, sorry, I'll just return. So, uh, France banned the burqa in 2010, Switzerland banned it last year. So the question is, how do we enforce such a ban, which is very important? Are we going to arrest women who wear it, or are we going to find, like in France, are we going or sorry, in Switzerland, that we're going to fine £6,500. I think there are certainly parallels here to the current abortion debate. We saw that two days ago in the Doyle TD produced a packet of abortion pills, in other words saying, you, I can be imprisoned for this, are you going to arrest me? So with the burqa, would we have a situation where people would be arrested on the street? Or would they be, we've also seen in the recent Burkini debate, I know as as we mentioned, it's slightly different to the burqa, but we have seen women being forced to remove it on the beach in France, which in my opinion is completely accept unacceptable, it's morally wrong, and surely the police have more important duties to carry out. So I'd like to, I know the word sexist is thrown around and it's as a habit of being overused, and certainly if someone is forced to wear a burqa, then absolutely you know, in Islamic countries, if they are forced to wear it, that is certainly sexist, but... On that point, sir? Um, yep. Yeah. Um, just out of interest, why is it only people from certain Muslim countries that... <coughs> why is it that it's not consistent? Why isn't there people from every single Muslim country that wear the burqa? Because... So, sorry, you asked why did it... So why is it, for example, that there are several countries where they do not wear... that no one wears the full burqa, it just does not exist? It only comes predominantly from the Gulf countries and then got exported out to the Indian subcontinent and Pakistan. Why is it? But I think there's certainly cultural differences. So I'll explain it. You actually said there's some cover the entire body, some don't cover the face, some just cover certain aspects. So thanks. Um, so yes, I believe that on the one hand it would be sexist to ban or for to force women to wear burqas in some countries, but at the same time it would be sexist to force them not to wear because quite simply this is about uh, controlling women, telling them what to wear and telling them not to wear. It is the objectification of the female body and the state putting an emphasis on what women should do with their bodies. Okay. We've seen this 
I'll take it in a second, sorry for me. We have seen it um, in the past where women have been told, you know, that their skirts are too short, for example. There's a picture I saw recently of a woman, uh, her skirt being measured with a ruler. And in the exact same beach where it took place was another picture of the, a woman in France being forced to move her burkini. So there are notable parallels. So, yes, um, is it too late to take your one? Um, so yes, instead of, um, so we have in the past women being told they're wearing too little and then being told it's wearing too much, it's quite ridiculous. And I would quite like to make a final point. The previous speaker was speaking about security. Well, quite simply, if we ban the burqa and other religious clothing, not just some Islamic kind of, uh, clothing, but other types of clothing, we are singling out Muslim women and telling them that they are different and not acceptable in our society. This creates isolationism, which leads to radicalization. Groups like ISIS can exploit this, which will result in terrible terrorist atrocities like we have seen in France at the hand of ISIS. But quite simply, we've seen France as being particularly extreme in this regard, you know, banning the Burkini and other things. They've quite simply fallen into this trap that groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda want. So, quite simply, we cannot isolate Muslim women. We have to give them the right to wear what they want. Even if we don't agree with it, that's we will not be on basis. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. And I'd like to welcome the second speaker for the conversation, Mr. Mo Musa. Uh, good evening, everyone. Now, I'm glad to say that I am dressed modestly as a liberal Muslim will go for. But why is it that there's no men who wear burqas? This is one of the key connections that I've just never quite understood. Why is it that I'm perhaps, I'd expect probably the first male that you've ever seen wear a burqa. What's amazing about this piece of clothing is, as usual, atypical of every religion, is always old men telling women what to do. And when we start conceding on the basis of, oh, it's a free choice, then we are stepping back 500 years when we start telling women how to dress, how to act, and this is what this represents. This is oppression, nothing less, and nothing more. So, opposition are arguing on the basis of nothing short of med medieval misogyny. And they can label it as a free choice, but the point that I was trying to lead first up to was why is it that it only comes out of certain countries in the Middle East? If it's something that's religion and if it's not something that is just kind of being led down from the elders and from these kind of uh, old standard theocratic leaders, if it was actually anything religious, then why isn't it there across the board? Why does it only seem to come out of places like Saudi Arabia and places like Qatar? and the places that have oppressed women and people and minorities and the, the types of people who constantly get oppressed all the way through the ages. Okay. Just, uh, doesn't, don't most religions have certain, we've been talking a lot about interpretation, but don't most religions have interpretations of modesty, even across Christian denominations? Um, it's, it's not necessarily written in any doctrine that women have to wear skirts, but it's generally expected that women wear skirts or they wear hats, hmm. uh, whereas men don't. Is it, there, is it fair to isolate um, something more obvious? No, fine, okay, let's religion? just concede in that case, right? Yeah. And this is obviously the most offensive out of any of exactly what you just described. And it's 
nothing short. Can I point out as well? The opposition are arguing on the basis of them liberating the women in the burqa by arguing on their side. They're, they're, they're absolute nonsense. Okay, if it's been imprinted in your mind from the second that you were born that this is what you're going to grow to be, you've got this path, the second you hit a certain age, you need to wear this everywhere outside of your own home. And we're arguing on the basis of kind of a, a liberal escape, taking off the chains, stopping the man from banning a piece of clothing and stopping their cho the free choice. What's free about being told at the age of 11 or 12 that this is how, what you're going to wear? I can tell you for a fact, it's bloody uncomfortable, okay? Like, honestly, 10 minutes, I can't wait till I finish this speech, I'm gonna take it straight off. Uh, I would ask the member, I'm grateful to the member, forgive me, I would ask the member, uh, how free is it to be told from zero years old what you're not going to wear? Okay, when I, if I, when, when a lady, when a normal kind of English lady here would, at the age of 12 or 13, okay, there's a certain limitation, but they pretty much have free choice of, of, of what they want to wear. This is not free. Um, it's not even that, it's not free in terms of what you get to choose to wear. It's like really stuffy as well. So, anyhow. Right, so, um, another point as well. I want you guys to think about British Muslims. This, after terrorism, is probably the most damaging thing to uh, Muslim and uh, re the rest of Britain in terms of their relations. There is nothing that is more damaging than this. In terms of differentiating and separating between the two, in terms of making everyone feel different from each other. It, 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 it enrages people, and in my mind justifiably so, okay? And it creates animosity between one person and another. And the person who's wearing this, they are not asking for the animosity. It's never been their choice in the first place. So they are actually being victimized for a choice that they never really made. And when we're, we need to look at this, similar to the point I made a couple of weeks ago, which is we need to look at the direction of travel in this country, in the political discourse, um, there, is a, there is a very definitive rise in Islamophobia and just a general anti-immigrant sentiment. This only propagates it. And terrorism, you don't see day to day. You see it maybe on the news. But this you do see day to day. And this really does make you feel different from that person who sat next to you on the bus who's wearing this piece of opera. Sorry, I'll take your question. Now. So, firstly, there are different layers of interpretation on wearing burqas in the Muslim countries. And I'm from Bangladesh, and in there, many people are wearing burqas and different styles, and this is a major stylish thing over there. Yeah. And since you're talking about security thing, that wearing these, that people are bombing and everything, but when you are coming to a country, you are passing the immigration, you have to go through layers and layers of security things and you have to pass through it. Then how wearing a burqa breaches the security and everything? Okay, so I don't think the suggestion was that people will kind of, that terrorists will necessarily sneak into the country here. It's literally you could operate in a country very easily as a man, for example, wearing this. But to take your other point about, um, and I mentioned, I specifically said the Indian subcontinent, okay, that is an area where it's, I just, what I don't understand is why don't you see any in Tunisia? Is that, like, uh, that's just, well, that's just the question though, about Why is it that you see, why, do, why is it that you barely see any in Egypt? Why is it that you only seem to see them 
exactly where the Gulf countries have their madrasas and they teach the same ideology over and over again. They spread it around the world and this is what happens. You will not find a liberal Muslim who thinks that this is acceptable. You will not find anyone who doesn't just buy into the typical madrasa mantra who thinks this is acceptable. Absolutely no one. I'm going to fight, finish on a little bit of a kind of a flippant note, but my mum used to threaten me when I was 14, where if I was Mr. Hayden, she said that she would wear this into school. Okay? This is, this is what, mi- what Muslim women really think. And if you think that there are people who actually think of this as, um, as freed- their freedom of choice, deep down, then I, I give up. Vote <laughs> <But> for them. <laughs> Which I want to ask on the second speaker of the opposition, Ms. Shifra Dixon. Bravo. Um, Mr. Chairman, members of the House, I stand before you today asking you to consider what we would be, wish to be as a country. Do we wish to live in a country which subjugates its citizens or one which promotes freedom? Do we wish to live in a tolerant, tolerant state or an intolerant one? Very basically. The arguments in favour of banning the burqa come thick and fast. The burqa represents an assault on our liberal values. The burqa perpetuates the oppression of women. The burqa poses a security threat. But what if I were to put it to you that to ban the burqa would equally pose a self-inflicted assault on our liberal values? That it would remove a right and a choice from thousands of women in our country? That security fears are in fact unwarranted and policy cannot justifiably be made on such an arbitrary basis. Tolerance runs at the heart of this debate and I oppose the motion on three grounds. There is a fundamental contradiction of a liberal state preventing its citizens from practicing their faith. Secondly, a ban would represent a gross discrimination against a single minority group. Finally, I would contend that the state has no right to sell any woman, Muslim or otherwise, what she can and can't wear. On that point... Um, is it not better to outrage one generation of Muslims and have the, the rest not raised knowing that they have to wear it? I just think you shouldn't impose any blanket ban on anything. Can I respond later? <laughs> um, the proposition has posited that the birth represents an essentially illiberal challenge to our society. They assert that Muslim women are compelled to wear a garment by male family members and that the burqa is a cultural phenomenon that acts to undermine women. I would put it to the House that the very fact of banning the burqa constitutes an illiberal action and that intolerance of intolerance is still intolerance. The House is outraged when Daesh forced the women within its occupied territory to wear the burqa. But why is it outraged? Not because of the burqa itself, but because of the denial of choice. Were we to ban the burqa, could we really, truly claim to be any different to Daesh? Have we, or have we not also denied someone the choice to practice their religion in the way that they see fit? Have we not also undermined her agency and told her that her decisions are invalid? But there is also a deeper philosophical point about what role the government should play in our lives. The state has no role in imposing a moral agenda of any form on us. Um, Yeah, but they do have a responsibility towards social cohesion and towards kind of um, 
creating a society in which uh, people as easy as it is get along that's more important than kind of your moral argument if we're seeing the rise of race uh, race hate attacks and people wearing burgers have actually become probably the highest target out of anyone in the country so don't you think that their safety then personally it doesn't that supersede your moral argument uh, would you prevent Jews from living together in enclaves in North London or would you prevent West Belfastians from living in a separate place to East Belfastians? At what point can you impose social social cohesion? I don't think you can. At what point did we decide that the government has anything other than the absolute duty to uphold our rights to freedom? At what point did we ask it to tell us what to wear, what to think, or what to do? Uh, at the point at which people's freedoms infringed on other people's freedoms. Mm -hmm. But I don't see how wearing, how wearing a certain dress and some sort of affects someone else, someone else's freedom. Does my, does my wearing this dress offend you, for example? I don't comment, So should our government have the right to tell us what to wear in public? According to any rationale, how can the government arbitrarily choose to discriminate one single group in society? When I hear you cry, will female Orthodox Jews be prescribed from shaving their heads after marriage? But when I'm not But when will hoodies be banned from our inner cities? A ban on a single item of clothing would set a dangerous precedent and a new low in terms of our freedoms. Do you really think that all those who wear burqas are proponents of extreme Muslim beliefs? On that point? Yeah, the terrifying thing is, some people do. Some people see that and think that's just a symbol of what they are. But I would beg to differ. Yeah. Um, in Germany, uh, it wouldn't be considered offensive, and it's also um, outlawed. You, you know, you can't walk around dressed up as a Nazi. Would it not be fair to say that the burqa is actually kind of offensive to lots of women? <laughs> I think in this country you can wear t-shirts saying an awful lot of things and you can dress up, I mean Prince Harry dressed up as Hitler and he wasn't arrested, so these things do happen, um, I don't know what the answer to your question is. It would be ludicrous to imagine that all those who wear Celtic tops for example have strong anti-British sentiments. Can you really tarnish all people with one brush? Our clothes were a key expression of our identities. A liberal society is not one which restricts our sartorial choices and thereby one which restricts who we are. That, to me, would be the truly anti-British sentiment. It is an apparently plausible argument that to ban such a garment would remove oppression of women in our modern society. However, to ban the burqa would not empower women. A law which, which removes choice from women is bad for women. A law which specifically targets women is bad for women. And a law which oppresses women is bad for women. A ban on the burqa is a fundamentally anti-woman law. It impinges on a woman's right to control their bodies and their minds. And for many Muslim women, to leave the house without the burqa would leave them feeling undressed and exposed. Friends of mine have compared it to the feeling of leaving the house without a shirt and walk around in your bra all day. And that can make them feel really uncomfortable. And all women should have the freedom to practice their religion, participate in their cultural heritage, and express themselves through their dress. By banning the birth, we remove that choice. 
The proposition argues that men are always making a decision for women. By voting to ban Rebecca, we would also be making a decision for Muslim women. Finally, members of the House, we must ask ourselves why we are proposing to do this. A ban is highly provocative, reactionary, and a dangerous development effect for the whole of society. A ban represents direct, overt discrimination which will only stoke feelings of oppression and radicalisation. The only other group which tells individuals what to wear is, ironically enough, radical Islam, Islamist groups and North Korea. <laughs> Banning the burqa makes Muslims feel more unwelcome th than ever in Britain and gives such groups a consummate propaganda coup. So the solution I would propose to greater integration and greater cohesion in society is empowering women through education and allowing them to make their own choices. As Walter may have said, I don't agree with what you wear, but I'll defend to the death your right to vote. Concluding the proposition is Dr. Craig Miller. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, as last on opposition, my job is to try and close this debate from outside of things. There's been a, quite a lot of things that have been said. I like the idea that Jewish Orthodox women have to shave their head. Uh, being of the Orthodox Jewish persuasion uh, and being in an enclave in northwest London, I've never seen that. Uh, that is absolutely anti Semitic. Uh, that is standard sort of nonsense <laughs> uh, And I have to say, thank you very much for bringing that up in such a debate. Uh, now, the reason it, it actually brings you off quite nicely to the next thing that I really want to talk about, which is modesty, which is something that's been flouted on both sides of this argument. The actual root of modesty in Islam, sorry if this offends any Muslims in this room, is from Judaism. Uh, and it is. Uh, and th there's some real basic concepts of uh, modesty, uh, which is clavicles and knees. Okay, that's actually what it says. There's no real room for interpretation around those points. Okay, so it's not one of these things where you can actually go, oh, there's wiggle room, there's room for interpretation. There isn't with modesty. It's absolutely black and white. Uh, I'm going to also talk about the whole idea of culture versus religion, and that a burqa is pure and utter culture. And I'm going to try and explain where there's some other cultural norms that we in this country seem as completely unacceptable. And finally, I didn't think I'd be getting onto this, but I'm going to try and talk about the role of the state, which I really thought would not come up in this debate. Okay, so in terms of first prop, he does, he mentioned that biblically we talk about modesty. Now, look, I'd love him to come and try and tell me when did modesty from the root in the Quran, in the Torah, and in the Bible become covering everything. Never. I'd love him to stand up and tell me, when did it become covering everything? That's what he said during his speech. And I guarantee you he can't, because it's absolute oh, nonsense. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> My point wasn't that it is in the Bible. Like You could say, for example, people here you know, you've the DUP going on about they're against same-sex marriage and stuff because it's against the Bible at the point is people interpret it in different ways. Okay. Thank you. So, look, I've already discussed this is not interpretation. This is absolute black and white. He's quoted B 
Biblically, it is to do with modesty. There is exact words, and that's what he said. It's nothing to do with it. It's 100% cultural. The burqa came from the Byzantium era. It's pre-Islamic. There is no religion in it. It's pure and utter culture. Let's talk about some other cultural norms that we don't allow in the UK. Cannibalism. <laughs> from Congo to Maori, New Zealand, it is the cultural norm. Do we have that here? No. Okay, my absolute favourite... No. My absolute favourite... No, sit down. My absolute favourite... I'm surprised people on this side aren't actually getting up and saying We don't allow female genital mutilation in this country. Do we? No. Okay, but it's a cultural norm. And wearing the burqa is a cultural norm. Uh, the Dali people in Indonesia, I found this one quite interesting, like to cut off their fingers whenever a family member has died. But it's only the women that have to do that. The men don't have to do that. No. Uh, and then my favourite one, and seeing as the, the uh, American elections are coming up, uh, partial birth abortion is a democratic favourite in the States. Uh, well, they're trying to pass it under Obama anyway. Uh, but we wouldn't have that in the UK, no. Uh, okay, so look, uh, no. Uh, it's not been passed yet, I know, but Michelle Obama tried to. Was trying to pass it, she did. Uh, anyway, the point is, I know there was a little bit of humour in my cultural norms session, but the bottom line is that wearing a burqa is exactly that. It is a cultural norm. It's pre-Islamic. And now it's basically saying that you, my wife, I don't want any man to perv on you, therefore you're going to cover everything up. Surely he should say, actually, I love the way you look, and I want everybody to gawp at you. But no, he actually said... I'm sorry, and I retract that previous statement. I apologise. The bottom line here is that we are now talking about the encroachment of the state and how it's an infringement on on, on our civil liberties. I don't think anyone in this room is an ANCAP, are they? What? What? Maybe Harry, but even he's more in the libertarian states. But unless you're basically an anarcho-capitalist, you believe that there should be a degree of a state there. Okay, so even if you're a minimalist, the lowest form of government that's going to actually function, you believe that laws should be passed. We do believe that. No one in here has put their hand up and said, apart from Harry, that they're an anarcho-capitalist. Therefore, laws need to be passed. And I say this is a law that we need to pass. Now, I'm going to bring you back to an actual point of seriousness here. Sorry about my couple of diversions. But, uh, no. Uh, but, first op mentioned that a father and a husband will force their wife or daughter to wear a burqa. And we've basically banned prostitution in Northern Ireland and mostly in the UK for pretty much the same reason. It's not because a woman doesn't have the right to go, I want or a man, I want sex for money. It's because of the risks that are associated with prostitution being legal that you can end up with human trafficking, that you can end up with people being forced into a situation they don't want to be in. We've banned prostitution because of the risks that are associated with having it legal. And I put to you the fact that wearing a burqa and banning a burqa falls into exactly the same school of thought as, as that. In that, yes, that one, two, three, five percent of women that choose to wear it under their own accord, which there probably will be one or two, are going to lose out with this encroachment of state upon them. I agree with you there. But I also say that there's going to be another 95% of women that are wearing them because they are being forced to wear them. And it's, we've got to, when we think about what laws that we actually want to set, 
We've got to think about, are we doing this for that one or two percent of people that are going to feel like their laws are impinged, or are we going to do it for that 95 percent? Let's just say another example, gun ownership. If we allowed guns in this UK, which we do actually in Northern Ireland, but we don't in the rest of the UK, in the, in, on the mainland, right? We've basically banned them there because of safety for everybody, but yet there probably are 95% of people that could own a gun fairly safely. But we've banned it because of the risks that can pursue. This comes under the same thing. When we set a law, there will be some people that have their liberties impinged upon, and that's the role of having a government. Okay, it's sad, it's not a good thing, but the bottom line is we have to think about the overall safety for the entire population. We can't do, as second opera said, no blanket ban on anything. Uh, if you think about a ban that's happened, it's needles that have gone into the prison system, and now as a result of that, Sikhs can't wear their turbans inside a prison. It's something that we've done because of the safety of the rest of the people inside a prison. We've banned needles, but as a result of that, Sikhs have actually suffered from that. I urge you to vote on our side of the house because it's actually one of those things that are going to protect most of the people in this country most of the time. Using force and extreme social and cultural coercion in order to limit the bodily autonomy of women and force them into particular forms of dress is something that should give all of us pause. And when those women are structurally disadvantaged and marginalised in their society by their own culture and by mainstream society, we ought to think twice about whether we are okay with replacing one form of repression for another. Because it's the same kind of denial of bodily autonomy, regardless of whether it's the state and the majority of society doing it, or whether it's religious leaders, husbands, and fathers. If you want to walk around the street naked, I'm perfectly happy to back that. It's your bodily autonomy. But there's a difference between you walking around naked and people wearing a burqa, and that's that they exist at the intersection of oppression and marginalization, and you, with your desire to walk around naked, do not. Ultimately, this debate comes down to three questions, oh, and the first is all basically not now rebuttal. Are women wearing burqas a threat to modern society? Secondly, what is the framework through which we should assess this debate? Hint, it's a little bit feminist. Three, how do we best empower women in marginalised communities? One, are women wearing burqas a threat to society? Three subpoints. One, radicalisation. You do not decrease radicalisation by outright banning symbols of Islamic culture. You increase divisiveness in society and fuel radicalisation by feeding into irrational Islamophobic rhetoric, which pictures cultural objects as terrorist symbols, increase the divides and leave less space for tolerance and mutual respect in societies. Secondly, you give radicals an easy recruitment tool because the burqa ban is framed as an attack on Islam. People on the margins are more likely to radicalise because they feel like they are under attack, which is exactly the message that extremist groups sell them. On that point. Sit down. There's a reason why the burqa exists more in some countries than in other countries, and in a lot of situations, it's in countries where antagonism towards the West is heightened. 
In under the Taliban regime, for instance, where it is the most prevalent, you have a lot of Western antagonism. Not now. Two, security. How many times in the West has the Burqa posed a security threat? Very few. The list that the first speaker gave was basically the entire list. Um, most of them are anecdotal. There's less than a handful. But secondly, there's no difference between people using a burqa to disguise their identity versus hat, scarf, like a long coat. And essentially, you're not going to say change anything for security. Ultimately, more crimes have been committed using Halloween masks than have used burqas. Ironically, there are a number of cases in which burqas have been used against members of Daesh. So, you know, just interesting factoid there. But sometimes a minor security threat, and it is very, very minor, has to give way to other interests. And ultimately, if you need to make certain exceptions, i.e. in airports, then you can do that in safe conditions. Lastly on this point, social cohesion. Um, it's a slippery slope. We're talking about the burqa now, but that increases intolerance. There's a lack of understanding of cultural practices and a conflation between the burqa, the niqab, and the hijab. For instance, the second speaker for the proposition team was in fact wearing a niqab and not a burqa. Burqa has face veils, so we've already seen the conflation of different cultural symbols from that team. What's the difference between a burqa and a burkini, which doesn't cover the face at all? What's the difference between a burkini and a it's not redefining, it's just telling you what a burger is. Okay, secondly, what's the framework through which we ought to assess this debate? Ultimately, it's a stakeholder debate. The people we all agree we care about the most are the people most marginalised. We want to empower women to have freedom to make choices for themselves. So ultimately, we care more about those women than we do about marginal benefits to the other things. So even if you think security is like marginally increased by banning the burqa, we should still care more about empowering those women than we do about that security threat. Because they are the people most at risk in this context. They're the people most marginalised in the societies we're talking about who will not receive protection from anybody else. Secular society and secular principles are already dominant. Literally less than 2,000 women in France wear the burqa. The domestic intelligence services estimated 367. The 2,000 figure was a random guesstimate from a newspaper. Lastly, how do we best empower women in marginalised communities? And ultimately it doesn't actually matter whether it's a cultural slash religious practice, a cultural practice or a religious practice because we all agree that those women who are forced or coerced into wearing the burqas are marginalised and are in need of empowerment. So ultimately, let's talk about this. Many or most of the women who wear a burqa don't do so purely because of direct threat of force, right? Like the proposition team have recognised, they grow up in a coercive society and a culture in which the ideas of honour are part of their thinking too. These ideas of religion and culture are deeply entrenched for them. It's not just men forcing women, it's women as actors as well, and there's a special moral weight attached to cultural and religious practices in those situations. Women are making individual choices within the confines of those religions too. You can't just simply conflate social coercion and religious coercion with an extreme lack of agency that's painting these women as victims, that's denying them their voice, that's denying them their agency completely, and that's something that we on opposition are not comfortable to stand for. Lastly, what's the effect of the ban because you don't stop these women from being oppressed because we're talking about a small minority of Muslims, we're talking about people with a deeply held
held belief that's tied to God and given a special moral weight, held not just by the men, but by many of the women. So you don't just say, oh, you are free from the burqa, now you can go about your everyday life. They don't say, oh, it's banned, we'll just stop following the dictates of our religion and our culture. You remove those women from the public spaces and further marginalise them from the progressive societies that you want to integrate them into. It makes it worse for those women. Just like banning prostitution makes things worse for women who are in prostitution and does not decrease the incidences of prostitution, Constitution, banning the burqa makes things worse for the women who are in those situations. The women that we all care about more than we care about a negligible security threat that can be like perfectly happily satisfied by Halloween masks. The burqa may be a prison for women, but you can't just be as simplistic about it as the proposition team has been. It is entrenched in the social, cultural, and religious framework. It's operating at the interplay between agency and coercion, and we have to talk about how we empower those women. Thank you very much to all our speakers this evening, and a special thank you to Ellie and Sheba who are making their first speech for the Society. So So, we will start with a round of questions for the proposition. Does anyone have any points they would like to make? John, yourself. And we have um, these groups that, um, in the Middle East, like Daesh, who are spreading anti-West and um, theocratic ideas. Does Buying the burger in the West, not fuel the propaganda machine, and create a more di divisive world where we're, we're being attacked by an ever-growing Muslim um, majority, minority of people, because of the proposition. No. Yeah. Um, no, you go. I was just going to say that I think that when you're coming to radicalisation, anything can radicalise people. Uh, I think that the first wave, from what I understand, of radicalisation came from when there wasn't Western intervention, when I think the Serbians were getting massacred. I think that was the case, and as such, that that was a reason to radicalise people was by not intervening. Uh, now it's a case of by intervening. I think that you're always going to find people that want to ra be radicalised, if that's a way of putting it, and try to radicalise people, you're always going to find a reason to do that. Uh, and by basically try, if we believe in this house that this is a way in which we can stop female oppression, we can stop, uh, we can have a negligible increase in security, I think it's a thing that we should be going for, rather than worrying about if a group of people are going to always try to radicalise, try to radicalise. Officers, would you like to respond? Um, so, yes, <laughs> um, obviously we agree that it fuels divisiveness, I think that's pretty clear, um, and the people we don't actually care about are the people who are going to be radicals regardless of if or not this happens, but the people who exist on the margins, that's always who we care about in space, the people who could swing either way and are they more likely to swing towards radicalism if there is a burqa man and quite frankly we think yes because they feel more attacked within their own societies, they feel more like they are separated from their societies and they feel more divided from it and tolerance absolutely goes down when you start banning these kinds of things. Uh, do we have any questions for... You don't have to like it. It's your question. Do we have any questions for the opposition? And don't forget to stand up and state your name whenever you do it, just for the minutes. Uh, come on, yourself. 
and I'd like to ask both sides. You look fabulous, no, don't think you're quite cluttered. Um, I'd like to ask both sides just to comment on the fact that integration in Britain has been going so badly, we don't even know what women who wear burgers think of them. Full disclosure, we didn't approach the Islam Society after winning. Oh, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying. Full disclosure. Proposition, would you like to start and then we can move over to the opposition? Promptly, please. Um, it's actually very um, it's actually very difficult to find any woman who actually wears the burqa to, to, to comment on it. Uh, a lot of them, in fact, 90% of them I was watching a BBC documentary about it, they will refuse to comment on it purely because of the influences that uh, are on them or are on them. And um, and yeah, no, it, obviously it's incredibly hard for us to find, you know, probably would have been better if we had had a, a Muslim, you know, a Muslim and a, and a female, but obviously it would have been better to have the cohesion of that. Um, but absolutely, um, in Britain, we uh, don't know what we're talking about here. We don't know about, um, it's like, but is it not better that we remove the oppression? Is it not better? Because we know where it comes from. We know what it represents. It's always represented that. You know, it does, it, you know, this is 1,500 years, so you can't just turn around and say, oh, well, today we decide it's a feminist statement. Is it not better that we look to remove uh, oppression and discrimination as fast as possible? Uh, I would like to make the point that as soon as you focus on education, you empower those women to make that choice for themselves to reject the burqa and what it stands for. And it empowers them to enter the political discourse so they can stand up in public life and say, look, I, this is not, not what we should be doing. School. We'll go back around. Does anyone have any questions for the proposition? Share uh, yourself. Share I just like to make the point that my question does make the assumption that there are women who wear the burqa through a completely free and autonomous choice that they're not forced at all. How is the decision of a lady who chooses to wear a burqa any different than the decision of a Christian woman who enters a convent, becomes a nun, and so has to wear a habit? Because on a superficial level, they're very similar garments. If you're not, so uh, my question would be, are you going to ban the habit for nuns as well? And if not, is it not discriminatory to ban the burqa based solely on uh, its association with radical Islam, which this woman who chooses to wear a burqa may and most likely does not have any links to? Um, well, first of all, um, the habit is extremely different from the burqa. We're predominantly talking about face coverings in this particular debate. We define emotion, and that's the way that we kind of um, attach this debate. Secondly, I don't know the exact statistics, but I'm probably sure probably less than 1% of the Christian population are within monasteries. There's also no requirement in the Bible for every single female to become a nun and uh, to enter a convent. Uh, there obviously probably are women who are there from parental pressures. Uh, but that's something that doesn't, it's not like Islam where it is, where it is across the board. That is a fundamental part of their religion. It's, it's not even really similar. You know, nuns are a tiny percentage of Christians, whereas, obviously, whereas depending on what country you look at, sometimes up to 60%, sometimes only 40%, but a huge majority of women are wearing the burqa, so I think it's a very different site of origin. Opposition wants to respond? You've just made the point that it's a fundamental part of their religion, and that's what you're hoping to remove from them. Oh, I'm sorry. Bless you. Um, do I have to say it again? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you had more to say. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the sense. He doesn't have to do that. Uh, anyone have any questions for the opposition? 
Jason, yourself. It's decent update. Um, I'm just, my question's for obviously opposition. I'm just wondering whether you don't take the point that your arguments seem like overly politically correct. Like you keep saying things like, is it taxes to force them to Is it not taxes to not force them to And the proposition seem to have like real grounded arguments and things like security um, and like freedom of choice, well, freedom of choice. But um, yeah, so I just like to call. I mean, if you to comment on that, really. Well, I think we established that all the like security and those other issues actually degrade as soon as you start to critique them, right? As soon as you put on a Halloween mask or like a long coat, a scarf, a hat and some sunglasses, security threats exactly the same as someone wearing a burqa. So like those so-called practical like issues actually degrade as soon as you start to pull them apart. And what's left is the fact that this is a stakeholder debate and everyone's kind of mostly focused on what it means to be a woman in Islam. And it may be only 1% of women in Islam, and I mean, there seems to now be contradiction in their case about how many people in Islam wear the burqa. Um, but, like, it is about empowering those women because everything else degrades as soon as you pull it apart. Um, yeah, actually, pretty much yes. No, but uh, I mean, Katarina does a fantastic job of kind of like placing an argument in a certain way, but can I just actually distill what she said before? about the people who are on the brink of being radicalised. She's saying that either this man is standing here and saying, if you do not let me, let me make my woman wear this burqa, I'm going to bomb you. That is literally her entire argument right there. If we're saying about people who are on the border, that is the entire argument. Either you're saying they're going to be radicalised if we ban the burqa, or we let them continue to oppress their women. That was the whole argument distilled into one. Okay, um, in terms of security, you might flippantly throw away that hundreds of people being killed by people who are, in, who are disguised as uh, disguised in burgers, but I'm pretty sure that's quite pertinent. You're saying about Halloween costumes. Yeah, but 300 people haven't been killed in the last five years with people wearing Halloween costumes in huge terrorist attacks across the Middle East and make people scared in public, in public places. So, I mean, you can use it as a throwaway comment, but I would say that all those people that died, I'd say that is personal. Anyone have any abstaining points on the motion? Jeremy? Oh uh, yeah, just a, a small one. Part of me is just asking because I, there are a few things I legitimately don't know about the status of um, not just uh, the legality of burqas, but generally, but also a facial, full facial covering. So I, I, part of me wishes that this debate had sort of been placed in the context of um, whether or not it should be allowed to have a full facial covering, whether that's a good thing or a, a bad thing. And I, I, I'm also legitimately curious whether or not um, certain things like ski masks are allowed to be worn publicly, or let's say, um, I don't know, some people have uh, the, the, typical, the typical bank robber kind of uh, <laughs> mask with a, like a stocking or something. It, it's an interesting question, and so I was hoping maybe we could, we could uh, make a comment on that. Proposition we're about to start. I think we try to say that we tried to define the motion as such that it was to do with facial covering more than just the burqa. I think that was the point of what Mo was wearing, and I think that was the way in which we discussed the actual definition of the motion. So that's what we were trying to get across that there is a degree of uh, religious basis for covering the hair, okay, and there is a degree of religious basis for that, uh, especially in the married women. Uh, there is a degree of religious basis for that, uh, but there's no religious basis for covering the face. That is all well and truly within the cultural remit 
and I think we're try I was trying to get across the point that there are an, a multitude of cultural norms that we in the UK think are despicable. Uh, I'm not going to say I think this one in particular is despicable. I think the way in which women are forced to wear it is, though. Okay, and that is the norm in this country. Okay, uh, one other point in terms of wearing various garments is that I don't know if anyone's walk, I don't know if anyone in here wears hoodies. I do all the time, uh, and every single time I go into Tesco's, I get made to take my hood off. Every single time, and I'm like, oh, fair enough. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where it happens. We have it there as a rule in Tesco's. And I know that's a very minor, minor point here, but I just want to get across that this was to do a facial covering, okay? Uh, and we need to stay on that track as defined by first prop. Yeah, I think your point is correct. I mean, there are many different things, as you said, there's the, the burqa, the hijab, the burpini, and so on. But I think, quite simply, even if it, is a, if it isn't a religious thing, if it's a cultural thing, I personally don't feel there's anything wrong with it. I mean, you know, Craig has mentioned things like cannibalism and things, which are, you know, quite simply wrong. They're just, you know, against basic humanity. There's a difference between wearing something, you know, that may offend some people and eating other people. Or <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a big difference. Personally, I don't see a problem with it, so I just leave it up to individual people. I think the other point I'd make is, I mean, about the hoodies and I mean I work in shops so I know for example if people come in with motorbike helmets and stuff certainly you know same with airports I mean if somebody was in a burka and they're going to get on a plane I think it's perfectly reasonable to say to them you know we need to take this off so we can confirm who you are but and if you're just walking around the street or you know doing whatever I don't see a problem with it I don't see why anyone would you know it's up to the individual's person to make their decision. We'll have one more round of quick questions, so we'll go for any questions for the proposition. Uh, yourself, sir. I like the way he was dressed with the boca. So what he wanted to do is to make a point. So anyone who is wearing boca, whether she is trying to make a point, religious point or cultural point, what's the problem there? And why should I stop that? I'm not stopping you to wear the boca there. Did you give your name there just for a minute? Oh, yeah. Thai food. So what the suggestion is here that they're making a lifelong political point by wearing the burqa? Whatever it is. No, I mean I, I made I made the point there, and I like, I found it repellent wearing it for ten minutes. I'm not even I'm not even from like the kind of the contentious part. It's it's it's, it's really uncomfortable. Like it really is. It's really hot. It's really it's steamy. For you, not for her. What? what? <laughs> On like a hundred million levels, what? Why would it be comfortable for her? I'm sorry, my it's my fingers now. Come on. I mean, this is this is what I mean. This right here. This is how ridiculous the argument gets when we just we 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 paint like this picture of kind of oh it's oh we're defending rights. It's a repellent piece of clothing, people. There's nothing more, nothing less. It's really uncomfortable. Okay, and people are made to wear it. And if there is one or two percent. That's fine. But there's 98% who do not want to wear it deep down. And we are continuing to let, to let that happen to them on no basis, just because of, like, I don't know, um, basically kind of our liberal lawmaking. And that, that's the truth. And this is as a lefty. Maybe. Opposition response? <laughs> um, do you really think that 95% of British females want to put themselves into lycra and put on their suspenders and put on their tiny little sexy nightdress so they can attract this opposite sex. I don't think so either. Once again, it's a cultural norm. 
but we're not prevented from adhering to that cultural norm. Lucky, lucky us. Oh, come on, Robert. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Guys, there are rules we're here to Oh, bless you. A final question for the opposition this evening in the final round. Uh, yourself, sir. Stand up to state your name. Uh, Connor, I think more should have been said about the opposite of Britain at the time that we're living in now. You've got the, the sewage media perpetuated by Rupert Murdoch, and you've got the war in the Middle East, and you've got the West involvement in the war in the Middle East. And which is more oppressive to Muslim women? Is it the burqa, or is it the sewage media, or is it just the politicians' attempts to keep going perpetuating more in the Middle East? I think more should have been said about the actual the zeitgeist of the moment right now. And ever since the Iraq war, Muslims have been targeted and marginalized more and more and more. I don't think it's the burqa that's the problem. I just think it's the entire ethos of our culture and how there's no nuance, it's just absolutism. If you see a burqa, it must mean it's a terrorist. It's a security threat. When really, actually, it might be a woman's choice, it might not be a woman's choice, but the debate is extremely nuanced on that. And then really, if you want to stop terrorism, you should probably stop destabilizing countries in the Middle East and stop destroying the infrastructure and causing massive unemployment and poverty. And that creates fundamentalism and terrorism. So I think that should have been brought up more. Position. No, I think you're absolutely right. We need to take it in the context. I mean, this had happened, if we were having this debate, say, 20 or 30 years ago, before 9-11, before Iraq, it would be very different. I think that we need to challenge the Islamophobia that exists. I mean, we've seen, for example, recently, you know, we have the government now that wants to, well, it doesn't matter anymore, but it's at a one point, it wanted to name and shame foreign workers, for example. That is, you know, and as I said earlier, there is a question of when you... If the media, if certain politicians, if everyone is saying to Muslims, you know, you're different, you're not welcome here, you're all terrorists. I mean, it's sad that you, you've made that point, and it's sad that people do look at someone of a burqa or even any sort of, you know, Muslim clothing and will say, oh, they must be a terrorist or something, which is terrible. But and I think you know, we need to we need to challenge them, we need to challenge the media and so on on it because it does create radicalization. If you uh, if you say to one group you're different and you isolate them. You know, we've seen this in, as I said, parts of Paris and Brussels, and some of those people unfortunately went on to commit those atrocities we've seen in those cities because ISIS and such groups were able to, you know, tap into that isolationism there. So, you know, we have to take this in the context. So I think we need to say to the Muslims and to every other minority that they're welcome to do what they want, and we won't be offended by it because hopefully they wouldn't be offended by what we do. Final point for the evening of... Uh, oh, sorry, yes. Um, again, I mean, we're, we're talking about sentiment here rather than the, the pragmatics. And uh, I, I agree with like uh, the, the rise of Islamophobia is worrying. So let's not have something which facilitates that. Because the, the, the truth is, outside of the university atmosphere in which we can have healthy discussion, the majority of people do not like it, okay? And it does uh, instill um, anger and frustration amongst a whole, uh, perhaps even the majority of the British public. We need to think about the Muslim women who are made to wear this. They are the absolute victims of this before anyone else. And let's think about what this actually means as a final point, okay? This means, okay, every man is a, is a potential sexual predator 
And because they're potential sexual predators, I, as a Muslim woman, is going to, I'm, I'm going to have to change my life for them. It's, it's ludicrous, okay? All of a sudden, it's the rapists, the pedophiles, and the perverts that are driving the fact that me, as a Muslim woman, I have to wear this all day, every day, every single place that I have to go. Come on, people. Very final point of the evening as an abstaining motion, something on the subject of the motion. Um, Mike, you've had your hand up for a while, you have um, it was put, picked up on by the third opposition speaker very slightly, but I think what the debate neglected was the um, consequences of banning a burqa. Well, I'm sure everyone in the room is under no illusion that if we ban the burqa, Muslim women who wear the burqa are now going to run down the street singing songs from Legally Blonde. It's not going to happen. So I want to ask both sides their opinion on what they would say to a woman who would ordinarily wear a burqa after a ban, what, um, what they would say to her when she, whether she believes it's her interpretation of Islam that she can't go out of the house without wearing a burqa, or whether she's been suppressed by her man and told she has to wear a burqa, who now simply can't go out of the house. I don't want to know your opinions on that. Good question. Proposition? Um, yeah, I mean, I did, I did pose a question to Ms. Elliot, it wasn't, it wasn't really answered. And if, you know, if we do assume that there is you know, an amount of, the, uh, amount of Muslim women who would rather not wear, who, would like, who instantly like wearing a burqa, is it, is it not better to, yes, potentially oppress and to outrage one generation of women if it means that in the future, for many generations of women, they won't be raised to believe that they have to wear it. This is something that has been embedded in Muslim society for a thousand, over a thousand years. It's really cemented. To get rid of it, we are going to need something harder than simply. There are currently women right now, um, there are currently women right now who are raising daughters to believe that they should be wearing the burqa or that they need to. Is it not better to outrage one generation um, than to let this um, continue? Final response to that, um, So I don't think that white Western voices are actually ever going to be persuasive for those women. I think that's one of the problems with a burqa ban because those women aren't going to be responsive to white Western voices and white Western societies telling them that they're being oppressed. The voices that really make a substantive difference to those people are A, the huge numbers of Muslim leaders that are speaking out about the fact that the burqa isn't required by Islam and that they can ascribe to their religious beliefs at the same time as being a little bit more free with their choices about the way that they dress and the way that they behave. And also the Muslim feminists that come out of the woodwork and from those experiences. People like Malala Yousafzai, who speak out against those kind of practices, are the people who are going to persuade those people. And what you get when you get the ban is you push those people into their homes because, like you said, it's not effective at freeing that one generation. You're not outraging one generation so that their children can be brought up free. You push those people back into their home because it's such a deeply held belief and they don't respond to that white western like imperialist ban. So then they raise their children totally removed from the western societies in which they live in. So you don't make a change for the next generation. You don't make a change for those women. You also don't empower them while you're doing it.
a good point to end on. So we will go to a vote. First of all, we will do the opinion vote. So we will do your uh, opinion on, before you came through, or rather your general opinion on, on the motion, uh, this house would ban the burqa. Uh, so if you would vote yes, that you believe the proposition, uh, and you would ban the burqa in your own personal opinion, please raise your hand and say aye. Seven. And if you are opposed to the motion and you believe in your own personal opinion that you would not want to ban the broker, please raise your hand and say nay. Nay. Twenty. Twenty-eight. Twenty-seven. Uh, and I don't have an opinion on the motion, as it were. Chris. Yeah, I got him. He's the ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We now move to the casting of the evening. So, based on Spring's performance and who you think spoke best this evening and represented their side the best, if you believe that the proposition won on the motion that this house would ban the broker, please raise your hand and say aye. 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 Twenty-two, Mr. Dunn. Yeah. And if you believe that the opposition won this evening, please raise your hand and say nay. Yeah. Twelve, Mr. Dunn. Eleven. Thanks for questions. And any who live abstain on the motion, you think you thought uh, both sides spoke equally well or equally poorly? It's not what abstaining means. It's what we think. Mr. Dahmer, you announce the results, please. So, the opinion vote is 7 yes and 27 nays. Non-speaker ability, the proposition has won with 22 yays and 12 Thank you very much to all our speakers this evening and all of our contributors. We will be heading over to the House Bar, which we book every Thursday evening. You can come along and have some pints and some fun. Uh, and we will see you there, or even this weekend at Ivy.